Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. Soon in Sevilla, the much-anticipated World's Football Summit will take place, and Michael Broughton will be one of the speakers. For this new episode of The Corner, we had the opportunity to discuss with a 20-year experienced sport consultant specialized in tech, finance, and investment. Michael has occupied senior management roles, giving him a unique perspective on the executive capabilities of the sports sector. He has worked closely with clients like Manchester United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Liverpool, DFA, and Honda Racing F1, amongst others. From 2018 to 2020, Michael was also leading the technology and investment strategy at FIFA. In this episode, we discuss the most lucrative investment areas to develop a sports organization. Data, digital, NFTs, how, when, and where to invest properly for an efficient growth. Two, one. All right, let's go. Hello, everyone. Glad to have you here for a new episode of Le Corner. Today, we have the pleasure of receiving Michael Broughton. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm really good. Really good. Delighted to be here. Delighted to see you guys and to speak again um, and hear what's up in the world. Very nice. Very nice. And today, we haven't done it in a while, but JB is also here alongside me. How are you doing, JB? All good. Good morning, everyone. Refresh from the vacation. Yep. Nice, nice. Um, great. So, well, let's get cracking with it. Michael, can you give us a quick introduction of yourself for the rare people who might not know you? Yeah, so I, I sometimes, if I ever get invited onto a stage in the post-lunch uh, element at a conference, I refer to myself as the devil incarnate. Um, so I've worked in alcohol, tobacco, finance, uh, you know, pretty much all the sins of the world other than you know, drugs and prostitution, which, you know, I'm only 44, I've got time ahead. Um <laughs> Where I kind of see myself at the moment is a bit of an interpreter because I'm not an engineer, but I understand what technology is trying to achieve. I'm not a banker, but I understand what finance is trying to achieve. And really, I'm a commercial executive in sport, so I understand the, the commercial realities and politics of sport. And I, I really try to find a way for those three things to actually find a, a way of working together. So... Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad for this introduction because it really feels like even me myself, if I if I was asked to describe Michael Brown, I wouldn't know how to position him in the in the sports landscape. But it's a bit of a mix of everything. I just did not know that you went through alcohol and tobacco industries before actually joining the sports one. Uh, no, it was part of you know how how to best to start in sports is to sell products that everybody wants using sport, which everybody watches. So. I sold cigarettes and uh, Lucky Strikes and then Johnny Walker Whiskey with Formula One teams. Um, and I used to love it because people would say, oh, wow, you're doing a really great job. I'm like, it's not hard. Everyone wants the product I'm selling and everyone watches the sport. I, you know, <laughs> a bad job, you should really go for me. But a good job, it's, it, it's kind of hard to screw it up. But working for Lucky Strike and Johnny Walker, you already had in mind of that was your entry gate to the sports yeah. to the sport. always sport always yeah. Sport. yeah yeah I'm, i'm a failed athlete so um i figured if i'm going to be willing to get up early and work late um it's got to be where i'm having fun so um i'm lucky enough that img took me on as an intern paid me 50 quid a week in 2001 um and yeah you know just got lucky yeah And where did it go from IMG? Tell us a little bit more about your evolution to the sports landscape. Yeah, so I did, I think the jobs they were offering there were 14 grand a year in London. And for some reason, that wasn't appealing to me. Um, so I took a, 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 a jump out after whatever it was, four or five months, and worked for a sports marketing agency called Jardine Communications, which is now, many years later, part of Chime Marketing. Um, so CSM is how it's known. 
I did seven years around motorsports. So yeah, cigarettes, alcohol. It was touring cars, superbikes, F1. And then my mentor, a guy called Paul Nolan, who was leaving the FA to set up Nolan Partners, the headhunting firm. Um, I think I'd interviewed for a job actually at, at what be, was to become Chime, but it's separate, separate part. Um, he said, oh, don't take that. Come work with me. So I was his first employee, headhunting C-suite roles in the sports industry. My first meeting was David Richards of oh. the Premier League, the chairman of the Premier League, Sir David. Um, the next one was the CEO of, of Celtic, Peter Lawwell at the time. And, you know, just yeah. radically changed. I, I refer to it as actually a bit like doing an MBA. Because yeah. you had to work with the NFL, the NBA, horse racing, cricket, rugby, football clubs. And you've got a week to figure out what the hell the issue is in their, their organization. Yeah. Um, and you're talking to the chairman and CEO principally. And you're trying to find, you know, top level people. I mean, my introduction into technology and sports was the CEO, Ian Watmore of the FA, saying, I want a chief digital director, not an IT director, a chief of digital. What year was that? 2007, 8? 2008. Um, yes. Yeah, so what year was that in, uh, Michael? Yeah, that would have been 2008. And, and, you know, he was really trying to figure out how he would have leverage against broadcasters, right? You know, because, you know, in the UK, you don't have a lot of competition. There was basically two, maybe three. And he wanted to be able to go into the negotiating room and say, I can go live on IPTV and I can go direct to the consumer. So he was well before his time. And I had to go away and figure out, well, who the hell knows how to do this? What is what is digital and, and not IT? Yeah. Um, so literally, I mean, and then I have to interview all these people and sound like I know what I'm talking about when I'm interviewing them. I then have to make it clear to the FA I've understood the brief and can find the right people. Um, and you have to learn really quickly, really, really quickly in that gig. So uh, I had great time doing it. I, I never wanted to be a headhunter, though. It wasn't like yeah. it's my driving ambition. Um, so yeah, you know, it was it was fascinating. The guy we found for the FA, I think, stayed over ten years. So I like to think we did a pretty good job too. So, um, but you know, this is going to sound really cocky. What I struggled with as a headhunter in two thousand eight, nine, ten was I would often walk out of the room and go, "I'm the smartest guy in that room, and I shouldn't be." Yeah, well, I mean. To be fair, I mean, to be fair with your cockiness, it is something where digital was barely a word in 2008. I mean, it was webmasters. It was the, the very beginning of social media. I would say that the digital world really took off in 2014 around the World Cup in Brazil, probably. That like that was. <laughs> um, so to, to be fair, nobody knew what digital was. So to be fair with your cockiness, it's, well, it's really a thing where digital wasn't anything in 2008. It was you had webmasters back back then. 2014 was really the kickoff of the digital era with the World Cup 2014 providing a, a wide range of solutions at a, a, a you know at a wide scale and I know that there were a few hiccups along the way there too so it's it's probably fair that doing your due diligence to be able to hire the right person against you you probably had more knowledge than they had in the room to begin with yeah I, I, I think so um, and I think you know it's 2022 and I still find some of them are in 2008, maybe. Um, not for what, lack of trying, though. Like, I, I, you've got to be honest about the industry. It is definitely trying hard to catch up. Just we've got a lot of ground to make up, right, um, would be my view. Uh, some places have done an amazing job. Others are struggling. Others have spent budget but spent it in the wrong places. Um, so, you know, it, it's – I teeter – in sports, one day I can be super optimistic about where we're going because I, I am a bull on the sports industry. And on other times, I'll, I'll have a conversation with somebody and, you know, this organization they work for still doesn't have a, C, a basic CRM system. And you're going, well, you, you've got to start somewhere. That felt like something you should have started a while ago. 
And I'm not asking for them to have built, you know, the spaceship. Just, you know, get on the journey. Um, anyway, so, you know, it, yeah. it, it really depends on who you meet on what day as to what, at the end of the day, whether you need a, a glass of wine to celebrate or a scotch to commiserate. <laughs> no, it's exactly that. But it's probably why we are in this industry, right? It's because the opportunity is so big, and but there's yet so much to do. It is frustrating. And I, I totally hear that message. And I know that we have regular chats with JB about sometimes being utterly frustrated at certain organizations, not or you just feel like the, the, the basis isn't being covered, whereas the means are there to have them covered. Um, so that's a big thing. And that's also why we like, you know, we obviously are in a position to try to understand innovation, uh, but there's also the digital fundamentals that have to be the start. And so I was going to ask you, what does innovation in the world of sports mean? But maybe I can rephrase it in a, in a what are the fundamentals for you in the digital sport landscape that you should have covered right now? And what should be, you be looking at for the, for the next few years? Um, well, I think the first bit is start, right? J just start. Um, to me, one of the biggest issues is we we've used for too long the excuse of, well, it's about the product on the field. Yeah. As the reason not to invest off the field, right? Because as long as you're winning, people will come. And you sit there and say, yeah, but only one team can win, right? So yep. the, the, the very premise upon which we, we say that we have that argument internally in the industry falls over on, on step one because at the end of each season, whichever sport you are, only one team has won. So some would have had better seasons than others. Some get relegated in some sports and so on. But if you only depend on results on the field, when 99% of you will lose, that doesn't make sense to me. The logic just doesn't stand up. So the second bit I'd say is it's not zero sum, right? We're all too easy to be like digital transformation means I can't have traditional revenues. Like, no, like, If you can still sell good sponsorship and broadcast rights, sell them. But be ready and start building what is your digital infrastructure look like. Um, selling B2B doesn't mean you, you should ignore a D2C. Um, so, and, and vice versa, right? Just because you have a direct-to-consumer product doesn't mean you shouldn't be selling B2B at the same time, right? It's, it shouldn't be either or. And I think from there, it, it's... My personal view would be hire somebody senior in your organization who understands what is digital and technology and can premise it around a commercial conversation, right? So they may be engineering by background, but I would probably say they're more commercial by background because the job is you, you need to make money because you need to pay the way. Yeah. But you need to hire someone who is sitting around your management board table, preferably even higher than that genuinely understands where is the world going on a digital sense. So he can guide you, right? I'm not yeah. asking you to throw 10% of your budget at digital. I'm not asking you to hire somebody who can hold that language and can help educate you at the very top level. I, I spent a little time working with a group called the Digital Consultancy. Mm -hmm. And all they did was go into major corporations like BP And explain to them what digital meant. Yeah. And it didn't mean, and you know, I remember when they went to BP, BP said, um, well, we need an app and a Facebook page. And like, well, a Facebook page for BP is a dartboard. Yeah. Right? You're just going to have vitriol thrown at you because you, you, your fossil fuels, it's, it's not going to be pretty. Um, and why do you need an app? your biggest challenge is that in 20 years' time, all vehicles will be electric and you've got 22,000 forecourts around the world. What are you doing with that land? What's the business model? What's the digital model for, for cars in the future? Like, it's, not, it's not about solving an app. And I'd, I'd say it's the same thing with sport, which is it's not about having a Facebook page. It's not about having an app. It's about what actually is happening to our industry. Where, it, where is the fan? And now start thinking about how you can get to that, which might still be via selling sponsorship and broadcast. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and and that's a funny thing because every time we talked, and we talked a lot with JB about it uh, during his days at UEFA, is that there is a notion that, in general, broadcasters are overpaying the rights for the premium content that is currently football, for example. So there's probably not a way where you can internalize that and have a proper digital strategy that allows you to monetize it in a better way, right? So all those D2C platforms that all those federations are cre creating, those leagues are creating can be challenged to some extent if they come with the wrong strategy against it. So that whole notion of selling, but there's also the notion of, and, and there's the notion also of going to grab the community where it is, right? The younger generations, which are at risk for the uh, currently for the sports industry are very important and you have to go find them on social media. But on the other side, there is in, indeed that notion of how do you capture first party data to be in control of your fan base, right? So those three very fundamental elements, how do you actually position it because there is that notion. And one thing that you said that was also super interesting is I do genuinely believe that one of the issues in organizations right now is that the person on the, on the digital side of things isn't uh, business focused enough, right? So th there's like a budget for digital, then there's the commercial team that has to bring revenues, but that there's a meaningful gap between those two verticals inside the organizations. Um, so how do you go about solving that and how would you strategize? Because we're going to get to tokenization. I have some pretty fixed ideas there on how, it, how, you know, how to go about it when you're a club with your existing digital infrastructure and power of achieving digital impact. But well, so I think that the first step is you're going to need the infrastructure in place, right? So I remember going into FIFA, which is where I first met JB. And it's, it's quite good fun as, you know, a man from UEFA and a man from FIFA sitting in a room trying to dance around the edges about we all need digital transformation. How do we do this? Um, but you need the bedrock. So you go into FIFA. It's like, well, we need you to make money out of digital. And we go, that's great, but we don't have any tools. Right? We haven't. We had no CRM system to speak yep. of. We had a very old school way of making content and distributing it that was non-broadcast. Before the Women's World Cup in 2019, it took me four months internally to get approval to use GIFs in 2019 because we've sold moving picture. And I get it. I totally understand where they're coming from legally. Yeah. Every single broadcaster and sponsor was using GIFs. Like, we need to be at least with the times. So if you're not going to allow us to have the tools, we can't make money from digital. Right? But yeah. you don't get into trouble because you haven't made money from digital, despite the fact you haven't been given a tool. So you, you're kind of stuck in this cycle. Um, so the first bit is, you know, you need to set in the, the tools in place in order to do it. I, and, and as we move on to tokenization and what happens next, you have to remember that if you haven't done the basics, it doesn't matter what you layer in above. Yeah. Right? If you don't have a proper data and CRM platform, you can do all the Web3 you want. If you're not capturing the data, you, it, it, it's, it's pointless at the end of the day. Yeah. Right? So you need to get your Web1 and Web2 right first. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and, and it's too bad. JB is facing a little technical issue, but debating between UEFA and FIFA and how the... the um, The whole legal framework is actually one that is limiting the digital impact that you can bring is, is, is something that's super interesting. Um, let's move on to the to, to tokenization, because that's one of the big topics that we're all involved when you when you work in the digital space. We're all looking at it. Um, once again, with all the statements that we've been making over the last what 20 minutes now, how would you approach it as a club? How would I approach tokenization? Um, I think it very much depends on what kind of club I am, what kind of sports organization I am, right? So if I'm, if I'm a top-tier team in a top-tier league, so big six or ten in, the, in England, Premier League, top four or five in Spain and so on, I would have one very different approach to, uh, to others. Right. So, so actually, let's simplify the question. Let's take the top 10. Uh, if you were one of the top 10, uh, top 20 European clubs. I would make damn sure I control as much of the rights as possible for as long as possible. That would be my, my starting point. 
Do so not. So you would build internally your own. My own capability. I'm now I'm partnering with somebody because if I'm Man United, I can't build a blockchain. So I need partners, but I want to control it. Right? I want to own the IP going forward. And the reason I say that is my take on tokenization is it should enable us to do what we dreamt of doing with Web 1 and Web 2. Right? So ultimately, what Web 2 for me did was demonstrated that there is an enormous appetite for sport and sport content around the world 24-7. Right? Okay, it's changed how we consume it, but it never ends. It never ends. Yeah. But the only people who've really made money out of it are the social media channels. Yep. I, I cannot think of a single sports organization team that can sit here today and say, I made millions of dollars directly from my social media. Yep. Which causes a problem internally because they are, they're all building media houses to create content. But it's a cost center, right? And the way they justify it is against, well, my sponsor's spending X and I need to give him content to keep spending that money with me. Yeah. It's a funny thing. Let me chime in real quick. It feels like the clubs that want to become the media houses are approaching it like the broadcasters in the 2010s and aren't anticipating the future shift of the industry that broadcasters are going to try to, are trying to go in the direction of. Yeah. A hundred percent. And and so to me, if you, you, let's say you built your media house and most of them are pretty good these days, but they're all much of the same, right? You know, they're, they're hiring the same people, they're hiring the same things. I always laugh whenever Man United refer to themselves as a media company and you go, but your media company makes $10 million a year. Yeah. I know that because you're a public company and you report it, um, but you generate 600 million. So clearly you're, a sponsorship licensing and ticketing business yeah. with a sidebar on media. Um, and until your CEO came from Disney, I'm not going to believe you. Yeah. I, that would be the pivot. You go, whoa, okay, that's different. But again, I think if, if social media has demonstrated all ages across all different platforms want sports content, then Web3 should allow us to go, okay, because all media, all forms of media can be tokenized. So now you have a choice of how you want to monetize it, right? So it's not just about distribution. Now it can be about ownership. It can be about monetization. Um, Some of it should be lost leader. Some of it should still be fill the funnel, which is Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Right, but where's the funnel go? At the moment, the funnel doesn't go anywhere. Right, yep. hopefully, and there is no answer yet on Web three because we're so new on it. We're all trying to figure it out. So, I'm not going to pontificate on what this is the answer. What I want to see, and this goes to your questions around innovation, is people try. Right. And, and we're going to make a, a few mistakes, right? The problem with sport is your your mistake will play out in public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and so, so that's funny because I was thinking. So, would it be fair to say that if we consider some of the big clubs out there, your strategy would be close to what a uh, Liverpool or, in, in some ways, a PSG is doing? Right? They are both getting the money from the big platforms like a so rare. They're both launching internal strategies that they're trying out that are arguably failing, but they're still trying to build their own, you know, like Liverpool had a big launch um, that, 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 that people say it worked. People say it didn't work. Most people say it didn't work, but whatever. It, 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 it's, a, it's a question of angles. But would it be fair to say that you would be following that strategy of getting the, some of the short-term money but mostly trying to build and take the risk of having bad experiences for your fans to begin with in the process of learning how to go about it. So my starting point would be I'm, I'm delighted to see them experimenting and trying. 
right? Yeah. And I don't have an issue with them doing a deal necessarily with Sarah. You know, the Sotheby's thing was an interesting choice. But again, at least they're trying it and they're trying to figure it out. On the Web3 perspective, one of the questions you need to ask yourself is the, the usual right cycle that we've ingrained in particularly European sport of three, four years, how does that change by the fact that Web3 is technically immutable? Right? That it, it, it doesn't get deleted and therefore, okay, you've now taken back the rights and you're selling them again, but it, it's not like a sticker book, right? This that NFT that you sold with Sotheby's will still be there in three years' time, whether you have a right with them or not. You know, so to me, I love the fact they're trying. I love the fact that they haven't given everything away. Um, but I would probably be thinking of it more of a case of, I want to completely rethink what is loyalty, what is a marketplace for a club. And part of the marketplace is content, right? And yeah. how do I create via Web3 a true loyalty program that isn't just about the fans who come to the venue every week? Yeah. So, again, it, it has to come back to the fan. If you don't start and finish with the fan, you, you're, you're going to make way too many mistakes and you'll, you'll lose all credibility. Yeah. Um, if you think what Liverpool did, the best bit about what they did was they tried to really educate their fans on what it meant. Yep. That, that, to me, was the best bit of what they did. Okay, they didn't sell as many, didn't generate enough money. That, yeah, they tried to really take a journey on their, their fans of, if you're buying it, this is what it means, this is why, this is how it works, this is what a digital wallet is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, well, I mean, and I, it just feels, it is funny because I generally think when people ask me what I think about Web3, it's just, the idea, the, the 2022 version of what a, a loyalty card must be. It's just a simplified way of proving your loyalty, of having everything in a centralized digital wallet where everybody wants to have it versus trying to have some cards or whatever it is that nobody wants to hold in any case. And it's a simplified way. And it's a great way of having direct transactions between different people where there's no middle layer, which is the sense of the story in any case for every single business, way beyond sports so it's interesting, but I do think that the, 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 the one of the elements is that there were a lot of drops and there were a lot of there was a lot of marketing activity. We have to go in the direction of utility. Yeah, I mean, you know, I put out my fan flywheel earlier in this year, and and to me that that kind of it, it drives at the utility, which is again start and finish with the fan. What do they really want? Right, and and then try to provide it for them. The the tricky thing is, you really do have have two very different audiences, right? Yeah. And the first audience comes to the games every week, and they're, they're they're like me, they're hardcore. They get upset when you can see the goal. You know, they live and breathe it, um, and they feel like they truly own it. But the vast majority of your audience never gets to your venue. And we haven't yet, via Web3 or any other format, figured out how you, how you market to the two audiences in different ways and, and appeal to them in different ways without upsetting the other one. Yep. Right? So, um, again, if you're investing in a football team right now, it's really hard to understand why you do it based on the stadium and the ticketing sales. Yes. Right, because if you actually look at it, once you've built a new stadium, your, your revenues have plateaued pretty quickly. Right, and, you know, can you really afford to build a new stadium is the other question. Right, so you know what your gate income is and how much can you raise ticket prices? Not much. Yep. Um, so... Your sponsorship market is getting pretty flat. You know, and at best, you know, all the research reports that I ever read talk about four and a half to six percent Kager growth. So mm -hmm. you can book that in if you do a good job. Maybe you'll slightly outperform. Um, your broadcast you don't control. 
yep. right? In the vast majority of, of instances, it's centralized. And it's probably plateaued as well. And, and particularly in Europe where there's less competition, where there's more competition, like the US, yep. obviously the rights are still going up. Um, and why everyone in Europe is praying that, you know, Amazon, Apple, and everybody spend money, Netflix spend money to try and boost their subscribers in Europe via sport. Um, but if you look at it at that premise, the three main revenue streams are flat. Yep. Right? And, you know, go through the Deloitte money report that's just come out. If, I haven't looked at this year's one, but I've often used their charts as the example of literally put them in a PowerPoint presentation say, look, all these football clubs, their revenue is effectively flat. Yep. So unless you win the Champions League, it's flat. <laughs> yeah. So if, you, if you're then buying in on the premise of each of these clubs actually has access to four or 500 million people who are interested in them, let's not go down the, the argument as what's a fan and what's a follower and what's an interested party, but let's just say there's 500 million people for the big clubs who are genu genuinely interested and want to follow in some format. How you make money of them is, is what Web3 and Web2 are about. Because you're already making the money from the 50,000 who show up. Yep. Yeah, no, and, and, it's a, and, and it's just a question of messaging. Also, we know from our perspective, it's how you make money. And it's also how you provide them with an experience that gives them a reason to actually spend that money through different ways beyond your traditional, if you're an international fan, your traditional merchandising purchases. Right. And that goes to the, again, my fan flywheel started with the Amazon one. Right. I literally downloaded the Amazon flywheel, had a look at it and went, well, theirs is predicated on the customer comes first and the customer experience must be amazing. Give them lots of choice, get it to them quickly and everything else will sort itself out. Only then do they then layer in the other elements. But yeah. the customer is number one. It's really clear. Yeah. How many fans feel like they come first? None. Right. None. I, I think it's actually, I mean, you, you thought about it for about two seconds and then you came. Yeah, no, I thought about it because I was going to say the socials model, but it's, it's the exact opposite. In reality, it's the exact opposite what's going on at that club. So there is that notion of some people used it as a marketing tool to try to say we put our fans first, but the reality is I don't have an organization, or at least in the, once again, if we look at the top 20 clubs, I don't have an organization that puts the fans first. No, and I would argue that there's a reason to it too, right? But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I hear where you're going with it. Yeah, so to me, again, what, what should, what's the biggest innovation? Put the fan first. Yeah. Right? So if you put the fan first, that still means, by the way, one of the most important things is the players on the pitch, whatever pitch that is, right? Yeah. That doesn't change that. Yeah, but if you have the fans, you will have the choice of the players. Right. But fans first, maybe players second. Again, the way you – so I remember listening to a conference and somebody was talking about um, – I think it was Wimbledon, and I used this example a few times. There were seven or eight bullet points on the slide that was presented. And every single one of them, you nodded and went, yeah, I get it. Like, heritage is important to Wimbledon. Like, yeah, right? All white, you know, not branded everywhere. Heritage, classic. Da -da -da. And the last bullet point on the slide of eight said the fan comes first. And I started laughing because I said, well, they come eighth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Just the order that you put them down on paper tells me where they actually fit. If you just took that bottom one and put it to the top of the list. The rest of the list would be radically different. The way you interpret the other seven will be different. Yeah. Heritage is still important to Wimbledon. But under the framework of the fan comes first, what does it mean? Yeah. Right? From yeah. there, how do you then, and this is why I think technology is so important, is, again, only a few people can get to Wimbledon every year. Only a few people can watch it, actually. Only a few people get to a football stadium in a year. So the only way to get to that broader audience is tech. It's the only way. And now some tech is traditional and it's a broadcast 
linear TV. It's still technology. Yeah. Right. Um, we get we on this call tend to get more excited about some of the latest stuff that's coming out. Um, but again, we're still looking at it through the lens of well, how do I get that to the fan or the athlete or whatever whatever it may be, whatever sphere of innovation we're looking at, so that the experience is better. Which yeah. in, in the inverse, if the experience is better, the fan are having more fun. You're going to make more money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, again, you know, I've, I've sat in the room where, you know, I remember this, this guy from one of the biggest technology companies in the world said, you guys all think of me as a, um, a retailer, but I'm not, I'm a data company. And the data tells me that I need to be in retail. It also tells me that if I want to sell more retail, I need to be in content. And the data from there, from what I'm seeing, is that if I'm in basketball and football, they stay longer. And the longer they stay, I know how much money that will generate for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a smart way of reading uh, how you're building a business or explaining how you're building a business. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the whole notion that um, first party data is the new gold is something that is um super relevant and that's why it's all gone to the social media and i think that web3 a lot of that shift is actually choosing as a user where your first party data goes to and as an organization hold that first party data to provide a better experience for your fans versus for a global uh international media well a global social media approach i would say um Look, we could talk about this for, you know, one more hour, I'm sure. Uh, but one of the other angles of Michael Broughton's hat is the financial one. Um, and this is something I don't want to miss out on. Um, because in some way, you're very close to innovation and very close to the startup money. You're also very close to the end game where you were involved in a few potential acquisitions or, you know, at the very least, you're... Uh, opinion was asked, uh, and if, and in some you were actually involved. Um, how do you position it? Um, how do you position yourself? How, how how do you go about it? And how do you have the clear difference in the way you approach it with with uh, according to the people you're talking to? Um. So the biggest challenge I well, yeah, there's a few questions to unpack there. Um, yeah. I got into it because back in 2010, th that point was I, I just didn't see people couldn't use us because they didn't have enough money, so they couldn't get enough good people. And I sat there and said, there's some really good businesses in sport that just are undercapitalized. And if you could recapitalize them, you could hire better people. If you hire better people, you'll build better products, you'll build more fan relationships, you'll make more money. Like it, it was a virtuous cycle that I could see. And I pitched that to my old man who I wanted to work with. No one was doing it. So we started and we had eight great years, which was primarily looking at relatively small businesses um, and seeing the challenges of startup money, series A, series B, that kind of level. Um, and trying to learn what it was that investors look for, trying to help the innovators of the world figure out how to translate what they wanted to say to investors, but also to clients, which is two very different dialogues. Yeah. Right? And it's even crazier when you have the, the unique challenge of everyone wants to get to Silicon Valley. So they build this hockey stick curve, but then they talk to me and I'm, I'm British and go, I don't believe in hockey stick curves, <laughs> um, but you know, I want I want them to happen, but the one plus one plus one plus one in your Excel spreadsheet, which equals me being a billionaire in three months' time, is unlikely to happen. Let's rethink how that works. Da, da, da. Yeah. Um, where I've always approached it from it is, and this is a challenge on both sides of the story, is what actually is your pitch? So if you take the Chelsea example, where, you know, it was funny. I was in I was in Madrid having coffee with Michael Sutherland, another great innovator who I, I really admire. 
and my phone started going mental in my pocket and I, I had to go and answer it. And it turned out that Chelsea was being sold. So I yeah. called my father and said, we, we, we need to try and buy Chelsea, which sounded completely ludicrous as a fan of the club. Yeah. Um, who, you know, yeah, it was quite funny explaining to my children, no, we do not have the money to buy Chelsea Football Club. Um, we'd probably live in a bigger house if we did. Um, but you sat there again on the premise we talked about earlier, of, well, the stadium sold out, the sponsorship is X, and you sat there again, well, how would you rethink it? And so yeah. to me, that was sitting down with the investors was, this is how I see the commercial model. Right. This is how I. This is where I see. Yes, I think Chelsea. You could see why building a stadium there would make sense. You could see where they had left money on the table from sponsorship. Yeah. But the returns from fixing those two things, given the capital outlay, are single digit at best. Yeah. But actually, okay. How do you reimagine getting to four hundred million people around the world, and what would that look like? What is and, and for me, I'm literally writing on a sheet of paper the tech stack I would put together, right? And some of the parties, like yourself, like my friends at PTI and other places that I would call in and say, right, what's this need to look like to be effective? Yeah. Right? You know, what are the companies that you two know and have seen and like that I should be bringing in as part of this? That, um, because I'm a bull. I, I, I don't believe there are less people watching sport. I think the way they're watching it is radically different and where they're at and the amount of time. Yeah. Um, and every, every 10 years, you see these reports saying the next generation isn't consuming sport. So, well, no, they're not consuming it the way we measure it. Yeah. But then I watch kids, and you know, I've got an 8-year-old and an 11-year-old, and the way they engage with sport, it's just different to me. Yeah. Right. I've I've now got my eleven year old who can sit down and watch ninety minutes of football with me, which is for me very gratifying. Yeah. But it's crazy. Um you know, he's playing Madfoot and things like that whilst watching and he's got one you know, he's only got what an iPad, but he's got three different screens almost on the go on the iPad playing different yeah. things whilst watching the game and you know. Um so to me, you, you have to you have to try and figure out where the future revenues are for them. But again, private equity, particularly, one of the challenges, they'll model the past going forward. Right? So they'll say, show me the last five years of accounts. Yeah. Now we're going to layer in X percent CAGA growth on these things going forward. And they get to a model. And I go, yeah, but you're missing two whole new lines. Which is where your growth should be coming from. This is where your growth should be coming from. And because there's no marketing budget currently in sport, they forget to put in that there is a cost to building that out. Yes. Right? So because sports don't do marketing, that's what they, they sell their sponsorship to a brand who will hopefully do the marketing for them effectively. Yeah. Um, when I look at the D2C opportunities that are out there, I always laugh because sometimes the content isn't great, but even when it is, they forget the amount of money that the Skies, the NBCs are spending on building an audience to come to watch it. Yeah. Um, this goes to my field of dreams of build it and they will come. It's like, well, it's a bit more complex than that. Yeah. Um, audience tends to be, it's better to start with the audience to monetize. History has proven us that on web, on web too. Yeah. Um, but sport, you know, again, with considering how pessimistic some people can be about sport, I do laugh given how many investors are keen to get in. Yes. Right. So internally in our industry, people are is it for the new bad reasons, though? People in the past were invested in clubs and were covering the loss of their clubs because there is that kind of I'm part of the group. Is there... Is, is there a new trend at a bigger, bigger scale in that regard? Well, the numbers just got so big, right? I mean, you know, how many individuals can afford these things now? 
They yep. can't, right? So then it has to be institutional money because they have the deeper pockets. But, you, you know, again, we have a dichotomy, which is well, we want our sport to professionalize, but we don't want the consequences of professionalization. Yep. Right? Um, I remember being on a train back from a Liverpool game and people on the train being disgusted at how sponsors and VIPs took so many tickets and how unfair it was and so on. And in the same sentence saying, you know, it's ridiculous that we haven't spent another 50 million on a striker. <laughs> yeah. I'm going, well, you know, what is it you want? And what they want is the cake, the icing and the cherry. And I'm a fan. So do I. Yeah. Right. You know? So, but you have to understand that if you want that 50 million striker, you need to do something different. Um, and the institutional money might be required. Yeah. Um, where I get nervous around investment in sports is I don't always feel like the sports rights holders have been very well advised. So that makes me nervous because it means that the people on the other side of the table know something you don't know. Wait, so when you said the sports right holders, are you talking about the broadcasters who acquire the rights? No, I'm talking about the actual rights holders, the, the, the actual sport. Okay. Right, so, you know... Not the, the RHB, yeah, you're talking about the, the, the one who actually owned, yes. Okay. They own it, and they're going to sell 15% or 50% or whatever it may be. And it's because they need cash, effectively. And that's fine. That, that happens in every business. But I... I generally, when I look at the consequences of the deal, I've typically gone and said, well, even when I'm advising the investor, I'm like, well, that feels stacked on the investor's side. Like, why, why are they so much better informed than the person doing the selling? Is it because they just need the cash and they need it now? Which, okay, that, that, that's real. Yeah. Particularly post-COVID. Um, So, you know, you, that, that just makes me twitchy. That makes me twitchy. Um, and you, you've seen all sorts of transactions happen where you go, okay, well, I feel like that's a sweetheart deal for the investor. Um, sometimes I'm annoyed because it was me who missed out. And I'm like, you know, I would have liked that sweetheart deal. Let's be honest. There, there are investments, though, recently where I feel the club or the, the, the owner of the club leaving the club is the big winner out of it because they're, they're – I tend to think that we were seeing only great investments for European sports, but that there are some that are starting to be very irrational from my standpoint and not necessarily the bigger ones. I'm talking mostly about the mid-range, the low-range ones. And so I would 100% agree with you if you did it on the premise that you've bought it at that price, but you're not changing the business model. Yes. Right. So if your if your business model remains, I'm going to get a three percent increase in tickets each year, a five and a half percent increase in sponsorship sales, and every three or four years, the central rights holder is going to get a five percent increase in distributions for me. But I'm going to overpay by twenty, thirty percent now because I want to get a hold of this long term asset. And you sit there going, "Well, that's nuts." Yep. Right. Yeah. If if. And I've yet to see this. If actually one goes, I'm going to do that, but I'm actually doing it because I have a totally different way of viewing how I'm going to monetize the fan. I'd like to see how they're going to do it. You know, at the moment, I still what I find funny is I still see people going, no, no, what we'll do is we're going to do all this and it's going to be a trading game of players and athletes. And I haven't yet seen that work. No, to be But, fair, it was yeah. It, it, it's, at least in France, for the French model, some almost were COVID kicked bit them in the butt. But uh, but they it, it's it, it looked like they were getting there. I mean, my challenge with the European Super League was not that they came out with a European Super League because the Champions League is effectively that in the first place, right? Um, it was more a case of what they actually said out loud was we have a problem. So we're going to fix it 
by diluting our actual product. Because what makes Chelsea Barcelona so sexy is it happens every now and again. When it happens five times a year, it's not so sexy. Yeah. Right? But the view was, no, no, we're going to carry on doing exactly the same business model, just fewer of us. Like, But that doesn't actually fix the problem. The problem is the fan feels like he's held away from the club and he doesn't feel engaged and he's being beaten up by the rights holder. You've just said, yeah, yeah, but I'm going to charge you more to watch more of my fewer fewer of my games. I'm like, well, that that doesn't fix it. Yeah, like you'll get a really cool response for the first two years, and you'll applaud yourself, and then suddenly, because it works in Excel. So, to me, I like the fact that they were trying to think a bit differently, but the fact that they landed on the same business model but fewer was ultimately to me wrong. Yeah. It didn't solve the problem because it wouldn't have made a difference to the 400 million followers around the world. They wouldn't have driven another penny from them. Yeah. I think they were indirectly to, trying to solve for another problem as well, but um, we <laughs> don't want to go too much in the weeds of it. But I think that they were trying to find an answer in the wrong way to an issue that they feel is happening in the governing body. Um, um, yeah, and, and just one other thing is obviously you are, you appreciate the, the, the investment groups investing in European sports, right? I think from my perspective, at least it allows to reduce the gap between tech companies, sport tech companies, and those governing bodies, which have historically been moving super slow. They can't anymore because they have private money that's looking for return on investment that is shaking things up. So where I think what's I think going to be interesting is how the smaller organizations are waking up post-COVID to they need to invest in innovation and technology because actually they no longer have a choice. Yeah, they're dying. No one wants to admit to it, but they're dying. So, because they haven't changed their business model in a hundred years. Yeah, but guess what? The fan has changed in the last five years, let alone last hundred. So, and it's therefore there's plenty of life ahead of them if they can figure out what is it that the fan wants. But again, the fan needs to come first for you to figure that out. So, I, I think what what you're seeing is and this this is my advice often to investors and to startups don't chase the man uniteds of the world it's really hard for them to turn that around yeah they make a lot of money if they want to be profitable they can be profitable they have a tech stack the process is highly competitive and they're going to nail your price high Okay, you get to put a lovely sticker on your on your deck that you do Man United or whoever it is, right? Yeah. Um, if they allow you to use that, there they go. Um, and and one thing that is important about Manchester United, they're probably one of the rare clubs that have had shitty, a shitty like shitty results, but loyal fans, stable revenues. Um, so so it's one of the rare brands in sports that is actually managing that. Right, and, and but again. So there, I mean, it always reminds me of uh, Chandler and, and, you know, well, you know, the episode of Friends when they got the sofas, the new armchairs. Yeah. And there's a fire alarm going off and they put their hands down and they go, nah, it's not hot yet. So it's still <laughs> there. And you're sat there going, well, you know, if the building's on fire but your room isn't hot, that doesn't mean there isn't a fire outside. Um, so my view would be... I'm excited for investors and technology companies to chase after the tier two teams and tier one leagues. Yeah. Um, and tier one teams and tier two leagues type thing who you, you could talk about final being one of those, right? It's, it's a top team in a second tier league, but how does final, which to me was always a big traditional brand stay yeah. relevant in the modern world. Well, if it just relies on filling the aging Decoip Stadium, you've got a problem. Yeah. 
So if I was advising a technology business, I'd be saying, look, they're the kind of people you need to get to because they can see that their broadcast rights are not going to double or triple. Their yeah. sponsorship isn't going to double or triple. <laughs> the ticketing isn't. So if I'm going to survive and thrive, what does that look like? Well, it probably means I need to do things a bit differently. So I think what COVID will hopefully have done, and I think you've seen this a, a lot already, people start to embrace technology more, start to look at, how to set up themselves better. And that's where I tend to say, look, you know, I love what someone like Horizon have done. You know, every week I turn on my LinkedIn and they've announced another partner. Yeah. Not all of them are big partners, but they've built this groundswell of clients. And I think they go, well, I really quite like that because now when they walk into the big boys and they go, look, okay, we've got, we've got 200 clients. We've, it works. If you're, and I was in Supernor as an investor, right? The, the digital billboard replacement business. Yeah. One of the biggest challenges, and I, I argued against this at the board, was, well, it's unprofitable to work in tier two sports, so we just need to chase the Premier League and Formula One or whatever. Yeah. My view was, but it's too high risk for them. If anything goes wrong in the broadcast for Formula One or, or Premier League game, like your business is finished, so they won't take the risk. Yeah. So it's better to have built a reputation that you can deliver and deliver results at a lower level and then go up to the top tier as a startup. Uh, it doesn't mean you're not asking to work with the Premier League, right? But again, it shouldn't be going back to what I said at the very beginning of this call, an either or. But I, I always believe that investors, you know, if you want scale, what does scale look like? Well, it's not just winning Man United. Yeah, because how many big clubs are there? But so I'm, I'm going to challenge you on that one, because obviously I'm on the side of where I pick what I believe to be the best tech startups to present them to the network of sports and say, hey, helping you with the shortcut. Look at those guys. They're the ones that are going to make you win money. And all the startups that I work with, there are challengers who are looking at what the, 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 this organization is doing, repeating, imitating, killing, just low bidding you on every single every single opportunity they have. So they're ultimately killing the business in some way for everyone. And I have one example of one of the competitors of one of the companies I represent who are going with that strategy. Great acquisition of clients. Honestly, I respect them for that. I'm like, you sign 50 clients in the in, in a year, kudos. Like regardless, good job. But they just raised 1 million euros based off of that, how, how little money are they making to acquire 50 clients? How much money are they losing to only be able to raise 1 million? And so they are going with that strategy, but it's kind of killing the whole sports tech space in some kind of way. Yeah, so I, I, I am completely with you on that. And, and my advice would have probably not have been quite the same way for them to go about it, which is actually, if you have something of value charged for it, and I'm paraphrasing because that comes from Mark Andreessen, right? Um, my, my challenge is that sounds like somebody who's undercharging in order to get in and build scale. But once they've educated the market that it's, it's not expensive, you can't take the price up, right? So Exactly. You can't go from one to four. You right. can go from one to two, but you can't go from one to four. So ultimately, that company setting itself up to fail would be my view because it will never get to the margins that will make it interesting to people. Yeah. It might end up being an okay lifestyle business for somebody would be my personal take Yeah. Um, without knowing, obviously, who they are. So to me, you know, again, I'll, I'll steal from – I remember listening to a Bill Gates interview, and, and I think that it was really interesting because he said it was very good to have – um, I can't remember, was it IBM, I think, was the, the, the big client, right? And IBM were painful because they were so demanding. But mo where, where they were building scale was with all the other clients. So there was this really interesting analogy of that in order for us to grow, we, needed, we couldn't rely on IBM. But in order for us to get the great product, we needed an IBM to show us what good looked like. Yeah. Right. So again, it's not an either or. It's not don't go after Man United. 
if if they're doing an RFP, bid. Because at the very worst, they say no, but you've learned where, why, and how and spent time with them and go, look, what did we get wrong? So that when Chelsea comes up or PSG comes up, you're better prepared to try and win that one. But if you're relying on just winning the Man United's and PSG's of the world, it's a pretty small pool and it's highly competitive. Right? It is where you can make the most margin down the line if you've got the right business model. Right? But how many have I seen that have gone into even a Chelsea or Man United and yeah, they go in and they're all ballsy about their product. You look at how great my product is. And they turn around and say, I'll tell you what, your product is amazing. You pay us for the honor of working with us and you keep all the upside. Right? Yep. And they milk them for money and a year later they've ditched them and moved to somebody else. Yep. Yep. No, 100%. And it's a funny one because I'm always, if I had to build another startup, it would be one where I would pay a bit of upfront money to take a lot of the of the of the upside uh, because i do believe that that's the way that those clubs work because they're better at taking short-term money than building the strategy by paying with something that's going to make them generate much more revenue or at least in our current digital landscape which is too much driven to get back to your initial point by digital is a center of cost versus digital can't should be chaperoned by somebody that has the biggest the bigger business uh vision around it um yeah great interesting um look michael we're, we're we're about an hour we know um by doing our research that people don't listen to more than one hour podcast even though we could go for another one um but uh if we can just wrap that one up you had tons of references tons of quotes uh you alluded a couple of times to some of your your uh mentors what can you suggest in terms of books quotes leaders clubs organization to look at what would be your one or two maybe suggestions to the to, to our audience um my favorite book i forgot who wrote it but right, right now i think my favorite books are kevin Cayley's the 13 technologies that will change the world or whatever it is and the other one is the future is faster than you think um and i like them both because they're optimistic and i'm generally an optimistic person Um, I think it's eye-opening on what technology can do for us. Yeah. You know, and you can go back to reading Abundance from a few years ago and Peter Diamantis. My biggest thing, though, to encourage people is ultimately sport is in the consumer industry, right? It's a subset, but it's a consumer business. So go away and read things about the consumer world. Right? Don't yep. get so engrossed in sports business, sport deco, sport cow. These are all really good. Have them. Subscribe yep. to them. Keep up to date. But read Fast Company, read Inc., read books from people about you. Know, what is the Amazon way? And, and the point of that is there should be one or two things in each of these books that you read that you can sit away and go, well, what, what would that mean for my industry? You know, so my favorite was always um, Moneyball. And people refer to that as data analysis. And I don't. I don't see that as a data analysis book. That is a competitive advantage book. Yeah. What is my sustainable competitive advantage? In that book, it's on base percentage. Right? Yeah. But Billy Bean knew that once he'd done it, everyone would follow. So what's the next one he needs to move to? Yeah. Right? It's about competitive advantage. Well, Again, and mine will move, right, which is learning more about Amazon and, and Apple and people like these consumer businesses. How do they put the consumer, their fan, first? And then from there, how do they spin the business up, right? And I try to take little bits. It, it's not a direct correlation, right? Yeah. So don't try and force a direct correlation. But sit down with people like yourself, And then have the debate. Well, I read this about how Amazon works, and that seems to do this to our business. You know, okay, well, what is the impact of media rights on that in a three-year cycle? Yeah. And how does that change what the Amazon model is? Because they don't have a three-year cycle they need to worry about. Yeah. In their traditional business, not their prime business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
what it, what it makes me think about is you need a lot of distance um, in terms of your day-to-day versus what's the biggest strategy and try to shape bigger concept inside of it, and which is one of the things that um, clubs are having a tough time in their whole digital transformation of not just thinking about the next Saturday around the corner. And I think that that's a great way of... But the, the, the great thing is, again, don't blame the fact there's another game in three days' time. Exactly. I, I made an offer to a top-tier football club to inject a billion euros. Literally, a billion euros. Underwritten, to put it in. And the response was, we can't talk, we got a game this weekend. <laughs> Not a million, it was a billion. The B. We have a game this weekend. I was like, that's nuts. That's the very top person at the organization can have a game. The offer is off the table. <laughs> like, that's just crazy, right? You're not thinking straight. Yeah. doesn't mean you have to take my deal, right? But you should be sitting down and having a conversation. What does this mean? Amazon doesn't stop for three months in the middle of the summer to figure out what its next cycle looks like. If Amazon's down for 10 minutes, the world knows about it. So you cannot use the excuse of, well, we have a game this weekend as your excuse for, I'm on this treadmill and I just can't get off it. Yeah. Name a business that isn't on that treadmill. Yeah. Yep. 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 Uh, uh, We're going to bite size that. We're going to bite size this moment. We're going to bite size it. (laughs) Um, Terrific, Michael. Great exchanging with you. Thanks a lot for your time. I'm I'm sure our audience will love this episode. Fingers crossed. Lovely to see you guys. Uh, Appreciate the time and look forward to seeing you in person again soon. Sounds good. Thank you, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Once again, don't hesitate to like, share, talk about it around you. uh, And we look forward to, to hosting you for another one. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy it as much as we love creating them. If you liked the episode, feel free to comment, rate, and share with people around you. You can visit our website, www.lastsource.io to learn more about our activities. You will discover a wide range of articles and can subscribe to our newsletter to receive the latest tech and sports news in your mailbox every month. Stay tuned for new episodes. Le Corner.